0: Good evening. We are back on track for our Bible study on the life of Christ and going to be covering a few topics tonight. We had the opportunity to cover the Sermon on the Mount. This was towards the beginning and I broke up the Sermon on the Mount to multiple slides and multiple days. There are, as I'm going through the study now, I've actually never taught the life of Christ as I am doing it through this. I've done a general uh, kind of like an overview, not nearly as detailed. And so this is the first time in my ministry that I have gone through the life of Christ in such detail in a Bible study. And so as I'm doing that now, I'm realizing there are other passages that just you can't really teach them. as uh, just a blanket statement. There is so much content in them that we'll probably—we're I, I, going to be doing that tonight. There will be another passage tonight where we'll break it down, get through most of it, and cover the rest— The next Wednesday, and there will be other passages that will be similar. But we are going to start in, uh, let's let's look at the book of Matthew, chapter 12, and verse 46 through 50. Going to begin with a very well-known statement that Christ makes regarding those who he calls his family. So Jesus Christ is teaching here at the end of, of Matthew, chapter 12, and as he's teaching, we're told in verse 46, "...while he yet talked to the people," Behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with them. Now, we all know that when you have a family member in a position of power, there comes privilege with that, right? That's generally the case, that if your parent is the pastor, there are both good and uh, bad scenarios that come with that. My uh, daughter thinks that she uh, is, I guess... uh, co-ownership in this building, the way that she treats this building. You know, there is nowhere she can't go. There is nothing she can't do as far as she is concerned. I've had to tell my children, uh, kids, I don't own the building. The, the building does not belong to our family. You know, you got you to be respectful. No, you can't just do whatever you want. I've had to have those conversations. My son Drake is three. You know, it's hard to tell him that at three. He really just literally thinks this is his house because we're here so much. I remember uh, being in a church one time where the grandchild of the pastor literally told another member, oh, my grandfather owns the, the church, like she thought he you know, was in some way the CEO. And so there, this, that's a common thing, that when, when someone you're related to is in power, you think, oh, I have some privilege that comes with that. I, I have no doubt that the family of Christ thought the same. So here Christ is teaching, which by the way, consider this. I mean, this is no small thing. It's not that they're coming to Christ when he's just walking around. It's not when they're coming to Christ when he's doing nothing. He's in the middle of giving truth in in lessons in a formal setting, and his family wants him to stop and to recognize their presence. We're not told what they wanted, whether it was a big deal or not, but Christ doesn't doesn't respond. In verse 47, uh, the one said unto him, Behold thy mother, brethren, stand without desiring to speak with thee. He doesn't go and talk with them that we see here anyways. He doesn't Uh, ask what they want. He answers in verse 40 and says, who is is my mother and who are my brethren? Stretches forth his hands and he says in verse 49, behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Now there's a few things I want to mention. First one being what a great truth how God sees us that God does not require us to have any kind of direct connection to the nation of Israel, uh, You know that we're not a descendant of one of his uh, brothers, half-brothers or half-sister, you might say. That's not necessary. God says we are family if we do his will. Now, obviously, the first part of his will is to be saved. You can't do the will of God if you've rejected the Son of God. So when you've accepted the Son of God, you are... In the family of God, but then God, I guess you might say, kind of sees you and, and and treats you as family when you are living in his will rather than running from his will. But something else I want to mention that I've experienced in my own life, a lot of people find it hard to move from family to serve God. In fact, I've known people who they make an attempt cannot sustain that attempt and move back, wherever back is for them, that they need to be close to family. I I, I know um, quite a few people that have done that, and, and I'm not going to tell you that they're wrong. I'm just going to say it is hard. It's hard to be away from family. But I want to say personally that in my experience, the church is family. When God is your family and when God sees you as a child, and when God sees others as children, if we're both children of God, then we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? I mean, that's a common phrase. In fact, some churches tack uh, every name with, with the title brother and sister. I'd be brother us, and you'd be brother or sister so-and-so. Uh, I've always thought that was a little little too extreme for my taste. Not, I'm from California. I'm not from the South, so it always seemed a little odd to me personally, To call people brother, I mean, I don't even call my own brother Sean. I don't call him brother Sean. I call him Sean. So even that just seems weird to me that I get it that we're family. I don't need to call you, you know, brother or sister. But I think the idea is, for centuries, Christians have recognized we are family. But that recognition needs to be more than just a head knowledge. Do you really believe, do you really see yourself as part of a larger family? Christ surely did. In fact, Christ... You could say, at least in this passage, treated those part of the, you might call, church family. Of course, the church has not not existed yet. I believe the church begins at the day of Pentecost. But what would soon make up the church, the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, the soon-to-be church, he treats them with more honor as a family than his own family who's outside. Why? Well, I guess I have this question. Why is Christ's family outside? I think that um, there's been a lot of speculation regarding the family of Christ. We, of course, understand that uh, just because you're related to Christ doesn't mean you're saved. And although I do believe Mary was saved, I'm not convinced that his brothers and, and sister were saved, at least at this time. I think, personally, they get saved later. I do not see them following Christ as his disciples. I'm sure there's reasons. We don't know what they are. But there was reasons for Peter not to follow Christ. He had a business. He had family. He had a wife. There was reasons for Matthew not to follow Christ. He had a lucrative business. So just because there's reasons to not follow Christ doesn't mean you shouldn't follow Christ. If anyone would have known how special Christ was, it would have been his brothers and sister. And yet we still don't see them on the inside with Christ. They are choosing to be on the outside and then want Christ to make an exception for them when they give him the time of day. When they decide they want to be with Christ, they want Christ to come running to them. But Christ is not going to work that way. Christ says, look, if you want to be treated like family, then be where I am. Follow me. Do my will. And if you're at where I'm at, then you are family. And I'm not so sure that's a wrong way to view the church. There are people that attend churches that I love that I, I treat with kindness, that I, I respect. I'm not going to necessarily go out of my way to, to connect with them on a, on a different level for a variety of reasons. One, practical. If they go to a different church, I just, you know, I can only spend so much time with so many people. Two, if they go to this church but they're really never around, again, I can only invest in so many people. And I see Christ, it seems to me, making a similar decision, saying, I'm going to invest in those are with me the most, and those who are with me the most essentially become my family. Not necessarily replacing his family. He didn't out his mother. He didn't out his siblings, uh, but they were added to. You might say, <laughs> and I've added to my family. I have. A, I have parents. I love them. I've got siblings. I love them. But I've added to my family, and you are my family. And I don't feel personally the void that I think many guys do in the ministry. I don't feel like I am without family, without connections. I don't feel uh, the, the draw to move to Colorado where my parents are or to Florida where my wife's parents are. I love them. I visit them, but I'm completely fine visiting them and coming back to what is my church family, my family here in Meriden. And I think that when a Christian can see their church as Christ saw, family, it just makes so many things much easier. It makes confrontation much easier, because if you love your church like family, although it makes confrontation is always hard, it's not as awkward if you can see them as family, not just a stranger who attends the same church as you. It it makes it less awkward to show love, by the way, and to say, hey, love you, brother. I love you. You know, I love you like a brother. It actually isn't just words. You really mean it. And people aren't going to be creeped out when you say that, because they see that we are family. And they understand what you're saying. So let's have the attitude Christ had. Those who follow Christ are family. And let's be part of that family. We're going to move on now to the book of Luke. Luke uh, chapter 11. And this in this passage, <laughs> he is invited to... Eat a meal with the Pharisee. Not the first time. We actually last time we're together had uh, a story where he ate the meal, he made a meal with with a Pharisee named Simon. And so now he has a separate opportunity to eat a meal. You'd think these Pharisees would stop messing with Jesus. It doesn't ever end well for them. You'd think they would stop inviting him to their house. I don't know why they are inviting him to their house. I can only assume. It's one of two things. They're hoping to bring them into their home court and attack him in, you know, in their house where they feel more powerful, because Simon certainly did that. Simon belittled Christ by the way he treated Christ, things he didn't do, things he didn't say. Christ called Simon the Pharisee out on those things. So, I mean, I don't think Simon's intentions were pure, the last Pharisee that invited him. I don't think this Pharisee's intentions are pure. So, it can only be that we hope to gain some type of notoriety with the people by having Christ in our house because he was loved by the common man, or they were hoping to use that opportunity to attack him. Have you ever been invited to someone's house thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be a great meal only for them to bring up a conversation that you were not expecting? They blindsided you, right? They blindsided you with, so now that we have you at our house, we wanted to tell you, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, (laughs) where is this going to go? And it didn't go well. Oh, now that you're here, we wanted to discuss, really, I mean, I thought you were inviting me over because you liked me. I guess not. So that could be what's going on here. The Pharisees are inviting over Jesus to kind of lower his guard and then, you know, bam, attack him, right? I personally think, if I was to be forced to guess, that they're, they're trying to be liked by the people. And to have Jesus with you, people will like you. And so they're using Jesus as an opportunity to gain Uh, some level of respect by the common man. But as he is invited to this house, let's look at verse 37. We're going to find how this goes. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. It wasn't just, you know, hey, do you want to hang out sometime? I mean, there's some level, I don't know about begging, but some level of, of deep request. And he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled, that he had not first washed before dinner. (laughs) So I've mentioned before how big of a deal the, the laws and traditions of the Pharisees were to themselves. You ever met someone where tradition is more important than truth? What you do based off of what's expected you should do because of what someone said you should do is more important than what you believe? More important even than your soul, than your human soul, right? Oh, man, traditions have such a deep hold on us. Have you really sat down and thought about how big of a deal traditions are? Good and bad traditions. I mean, Christmas. Is Christmas a big deal? You better believe it. How much of Christmas is biblical? Well, actually, not much, (laughs) right? Not much of it's biblical. I mean, there are parts. The fact that Christ was born, that's biblical. Celebrating it? Not so much. It's not in the Bible. Uh, You know, the fact that um, giving gifts because you love someone, I see that, you know, God gives gifts to us. He loves us. But is that attached in some way to the celebration of Christ's birth? No, it's not in there. So how many people, though, would completely freak out if we just, like, eliminated Christmas? Oh, man, I I guarantee you we would have problems at Meriden Hills. If I just said, all right, we're not celebrating Christmas, we're eliminating all together. If I preached against it in some way, that would be a big... Some of you might say, hey, you know, Pastor Russ is right. A lot of people would say, Why? what are you doing, Russ? Why are you taking our fun, right? And I'm not, I don't think Christmas is a bad tradition. There's nothing evil about Christmas. It's just a tradition. And think about how deep, how, you know, the deep roots it has in us. And that's what you might call a good tradition, by the way... Easter is in kind of a similar boat. The fact that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, that's a beautiful thing. We should be celebrating that every Sunday, if not every day, you know. But one particular day set aside to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, that's not in the Bible. So what would be, would be a problem if we took away Easter for a lot of people there, too? Now let's talk about some of the traditions that aren't so healthy, right? How about Halloween? I, I, I don't celebrate Halloween. Halloween is not in the Bible. I think there are some issues with Halloween. I think that um, how someone celebrates it would, would definitely play a part in, you know, how deep those issues go and how big of a problem Halloween might have. Uh, but Halloween is purely a tradition. There is nothing in the Bible at all uh, that you could even say theologically gives you a reason to celebrate Halloween. It, it, is, it is completely outside the Bible. And, and what happened if families eliminated Halloween? A lot have already done that, and, and many have not. Now let's talk about the traditions that really, I guess you might say, don't really have a theology one way or the other and aren't even holidays. They're traditions of how you ought to dress. Traditions, let's talk about this one. Traditions of how many times a church should hold services. When I was in Virginia, I remember churches, this was about 15 years ago, churches, at least in my circle, we're just starting to eliminate the Sunday nights. I'm not saying they weren't doing it before 15 years ago. I just wasn't aware of it, all right? So in my circles, it was beginning to become a trend. The Sunday night was, was going away. I remember Christians saying, oh, man, those churches aren't going to last long now. Oh, man, those churches are going the way of the world. Oh, man, those churches don't really love God. I mean, it was just assumed that if you didn't have a Sunday night program of any kind, then you must not love God. And then, oh, man, it got really bad if they eliminated Sunday night and Wednesday night. Like, what? All you have now is Sunday morning? Do you, are you even saved? I mean, that was the kind of stuff that was being said. Like, is that pastor even a Christian if they don't have a midweek service? Well, they do. It's just a Bible study at home. That's not the same thing. You can't have a midweek service if it's not at the building. It doesn't matter if it's at someone's house. There has to be at the building a service on site, or you're not, like, doing the will of God. Okay. So that's obviously tradition. There's nowhere in the Bible that requires us to meet, really, I would say, more than once. We are told not to forsake the fellowship, which is a general gathering together. I think that's a strong implication that that should be on Sundays. Every Sunday we see that evidence throughout Scripture, so I, I don't know that you can get around that. But outside of that, there's, the Scripture does not require... A daily time that we worship together. Well, Pastor Russ, in the book of Acts, they, they, they uh, you know, every day we're getting together. I don't believe that 5,000 plus, probably closer to 10,000 plus than 5,000, 10,000 plus people in Jerusalem were meeting together at one location every day. I don't think that was happening. I think that there was a place where some of those 10,000, you say, Pastor Russ, where are you getting that 10,000? Well, remember, there was 5,000 that got saved just at one moment, and another time, thousands got saved another time. So I'm, I'm, we're, we're talking 10,000-plus people in Jerusalem, according to the book of Acts. I think that at any given day, the church of 10,000-plus was gathering together somewhere, part of them, in Bible studies, in, in groups, smaller groups than 10,000. I do not believe the Apostle Peter uh, was having a prepared message preached every day to 10,000-plus people. And so these traditions that we make, isn't it interesting how when they are eliminated or not followed, those who do follow them, how quickly they will attack you. Right? Have you noticed? All right, let's talk about Christmas. We did already. So if you don't celebrate Christmas, have you noticed people who do how they – it's not just like, oh, okay, well, that's cool you don't sell, I mean, like, they're they're – and they go to defensive mode. They think that if you don't celebrate Christmas the way they do, that in some way you're attacking them. And now they have to attack you first before you attack them. That's been my experience with things like that. Easter, same way. Halloween, I mean, Halloween's not even the Bible. And if you don't celebrate Halloween, Christians who do, again, it's almost like they want to they kick you down first before you kick them down because they assume that you will because you don't celebrate Halloween. And that's just holidays. And then you go to churches that have traditions about how many times you should attend and, you, and you're not there that many times? I said it Sunday morning, and I say it because I've been told this. I've not been in churches like that, but I've been told from people who have. They say, yeah, we stopped going to that church because every time we missed it, our names were literally brought up during the message. Like the pastor was preaching and saying our names and saying, I guess they're not saved or I guess they're not really as committed as we thought they were in the middle of the message. It's just a tradition how many times you ought to attend. There's no biblical mandate for that. There are so many other traditions. We don't have time to get into them. But there are dangers in our traditions. You know what the biggest danger of traditions are? When you elevate tradition to the level of biblical theology. Now consider. Consider the traditions I mentioned and the ones I did not. Most people... If you attack that tradition, most people will turn where to defend it? The Bible. Even Halloween, they'll go to the Bible. And they'll say, don't judge a person according to holidays, which, you know, aptly said, well said. Okay, I get it, but I'm not sure that that's a theology to defend Halloween. It's just a theology to not talk to you about it, I guess, if you really want to celebrate it. But they'll go to the Bible. What does that tell you? That they think their traditions have a foundation in Scripture. Now, some traditions do. The danger is when they don't, and you think they do. And now you treat a tradition like it is on the level of Scripture, and that if anyone dare attack your tradition, they are attacking the Bible, and that's what they'll tell you. What, your church doesn't have, you know, X amount of services in a week? Well, the Bible says, therefore you're not following the Bible, which gets to that odd statement, are you really saved? I mean, that's where where you get to that point. That when someone thinks their tradition is steeped in the Bible and you don't follow their tradition, therefore you don't follow the Bible, now your faith is suspect. How many traditions have their roots in the Bible? Not nearly as many as people think. Including dress, what you wear. Including what's tattooed on your body. Including hairstyles. These do not have the roots in the Bible that those who traditionally follow them Claim are there. And yet, when someone doesn't follow it, here in verse 38, he marveled. The Pharisee was amazed. What? You do not wash your hands before you eat? Now, I know that that may seem a little odd. Christ, being God, knows germs exist, knows the danger of eating without washing your hands. Why wouldn't he just do it out of the fact of of health reasons? What purpose would he have to not wash your hands? The only reason I can think is he wanted the Pharisee to marvel so he could say what he's about to say. Sometimes, did you notice how Christ will almost poke the bear? (laughs) He's doing that here. Christ knew the Pharisee was going to marvel. Christ knew there was a health reason to wash his hands, and yet he still chose not to. He wanted this Pharisee, to start this conversation so Christ could say what need to be said. Verse 39. Now do ye, Pharisees, make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward parts is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and, true and rue in all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. He then goes on to talk about how the Pharisees love to, to, to sit in places where everyone notices them and thinks that they're just the greatest people. But what I want to point out here is what Christ mentioned in verses 40 and 41. He first of all calls them fools, which is a pretty intense word accusation to be used at this time. That was not a small. Oh, you're just a goofball. This is a pretty. This is this is a big deal to be called that. And so Christ says in verse forty that uh, you think that by looking good on the outside, the inside is taken care of. That's what he's basically saying in verse forty. Then in verses forty one and forty two, he talks about how that's accomplished. He's basically saying you think that by, by tithing, by giving money and, and basically following the outward principles and traditions of religion, that the inward is now okay, and Christ is saying, that's not true. The inward is full of wickedness and, ra- and ra- ravening, and uh, that would have been a very hard thing for the Pharisees to hear and believe. And how many churches out there, Baptist churches, non-denominational, Catholic doesn't matter what they call themselves. How many churches would be in the exact same boat as these Pharisees? That they believe because we look good, because we tithe, because we attend every one of the five or six services available at our church, because we go to -to door-to-door every Saturday, because we do all these things, automatically we are okay on the inside. And yet, what does Christ eventually get to? In verse 44, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. <laughs> You're hypocrites, and you are like a grave full of dead men's bones, but no one knows they're walking over a grave. It's not marked. It's not telling anyone. This is a grave. A dead person lies here. No, there's dirt, there's grass, there's a bush nearby, but there is a, there is a body six feet under, and people walk over it not knowing it. They think it's something other than it is. They think it's an open field. Uh, they, th- they think it's a flower bed. No, it's a graveyard, but there's no markers to tell you that. And churches are full of people who are dead inside, and I don't mean because of mental health. I don't mean because of discouragement. I mean they are spiritually dead because they believe following traditions set up by men and women, has gained them some type of advanced elite status with God, and they are okay. And there's no marker to tell you this person's not okay. And if you don't have discretion and wisdom, you will believe their lies, you will embrace their hypocrisy, and you will buy into their, their religious belief system that it is the outward that matters more than the inward. That is not and cannot be biblically true. The outward does not matter more than the inward. Now, there are some that would say, well, but Pastor Russ, if the inward is right with God, the outward would reflect that. You can't separate the two. Yeah, you heard that? I've heard that. Yeah. So those, those that recognize the statement the outward matters more than the inward as unbiblical and aren't aren't um, so foolish as to claim that say it in a different way by saying well if the inward is right the outward would be right therefore if the outward's wrong the inward's wrong so they're saying essentially something very similar but in a in a twisted way so to make it sound more biblical here's the question i have for you who've heard that and for them who've said that according to whose opinion is the outward wrong. Well, if they were saved, their hair wouldn't look like that, whatever that is. If they, <laughs> if they were saved, they, they wouldn't have these markings on their body. They would go and pay to have them erased, right? Because technology allows you to eliminate them. So if they were saved, they'd get them eliminated. If they were saved, they wouldn't wear clothing such as that. Okay, let's for a moment claim that what you say is true. I'm not, I'm not agreeing. Let's just claim that is. Who gets to decide how the hairstyle ought to look to reflect the heart? Who gets to decide how many tattoos, what the tattoos should look like, where they should be placed on the body? Who decides that to reflect the heart? Who decides what manner of clothing, styles of clothing, length of clothing, types of clothing? Who decides that the clothing does or does not reflect the heart condition. Well, if you're paying attention, you already know who decides that. Who is it? According to them, who is it? It's them. They get to decide that. That's right. It's not, they'll claim it's God, right? Because, again, they're going to take their traditions, traditionally of what's expected, they're going to go back to the Bible, and they're going to say, well, you know, a woman ought not to dress like a man. Therefore, you know, no pants, no whatever, no this, no that. And... Um, a man ought not to look like a woman. Therefore, the hair should be like this and that. And and uh, they'll use the Bible for beards. Men should wear beards, or the, the, they'll use the Bible, maybe some some of the same text, to say no beards, right? Beards or no beards. Go back and forth. And but it, what it really comes down to is the Bible does not say thou shalt not have a beard. The Bible does not say thou shalt have a beard. The Bible does not say men's hair should be cut to the ears. The Bible does not say it should come below the ears. The Bible does not say. Tattoos are wrong. Whoa, 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 Pastor Russ, you don't know your scripture then. Because I know that one's in the Bible. I know in the Old Testament it clearly states, to not mark your body according to the dead. Fair enough. Tattoos, modern tattoos, are not the Old Testament version of marking your body according to the dead. In the Old Testament, pagans at the funerals of dead ones would cut themselves, scratch themselves and mark themselves in pagan rituals for the dead. I can only assume that ritual included a desire to help the dead person find their way to whatever paradise they believed in or to get them out of whatever hell they believed in or to show come some kind of sorrow. It was, it, was a, it was a cultural thing. But marking themselves, specifically the Bible says, for the dead was a pagan death ritual. So unless you're doing a pagan death ritual, that text does not apply. Now, I would say there's other cautions I would give towards tattoos and those who would seek them, but I'm not going to turn to Scripture and say, thou shalt not. It's not in there. And what's even more interesting is it's not even mentioned once in the New Testament, which is what we should be following as a New Testament. There are some Old Testament moral laws repeated in the New Testament. Obviously, those are included. But the Old Testament, thou shalt not mark your body according to the dead, not only was a pagan death ritual, it wasn't a moral law repeated in the New Testament. So this is a tradition of men. And what would they say? Well, what it really comes down, okay, whatever, Russ. You know, if you don't believe that the Bible is the Bible and the Old Testament should be taken uh, as the Word of God, whatever, you know, then it comes down to don't look like the world. All right, let's just say that. Don't look like the world. According to whose opinion? What? Wearing a suit? Does, does the world wear suits? They sure do. Some of the most wicked people probably uh, wear suits. <laughs> Some of the most powerful and wicked people wear suits. So don't tell me suits reflect godliness. They reflect the level, I think, of professionalism, but that doesn't mean you're godly just because you're professional. You know what have been suits in the New Testament era? The Pharisees' clothing would have been the equivalent of professional religious clothing. I don't see Christ wearing what they wore. I'm not against suits. I wear a coat. It doesn't bother me to wear one. I'm just not going to claim I'm better than you because I do. These are traditions. Whose job is it to decide that the outward reflects the inward? And that's the real issue, folks. That it's so easy to be deceived and to be sucked into this idea that, okay, you know, it does kind of make sense that if I did, if my inward was right, then my outward would reflect that. that. That makes sense. I can see that. All right, then, who's the judge? Well, God's the judge. Yeah, but not really, because obviously He's not, right? Because obviously other people in the churches are the, actually the judges, because they're the ones literally telling you, cut your hair, wear something different. What's wrong with you? You know, erase the tattoo or at least cover the tattoo. I mean, show, show some shame, right? Cover it up at least. Or, you know, long sleeve shirt or something. So obviously, God's not the judge. Because everyone and their mother is judging. And that's my problem. That if we really believed that the inward should be reflected by the outward, then let's ask ourselves, what exactly would an inward heart of love reflect? What, what, how would that look? Stop being convinced that men and their traditions have gotten it right. Take a step back and see all the damage that is done. Look, I am not against nice clothing. I am not against a clean haircut style. I'm not against these things, okay? I'm just saying they're being misused and abused. Take a step back and ask yourself this question. If we truly believed that there's a scriptural basis for the idea that the inward is going to be reflected on the outward, then first of all, ask yourself this. What is the inward that's being reflected? Well, it should be Christ and the love of Christ and the truth of Christ. That's what should be reflected. Okay, then ask yourself, how would that look? Okay, in what way does the love of Christ and the truth of Christ, in what way does it reflect itself through a hairstyle? In what way can I reflect the love of Christ by me cutting my hair a certain way? How can I reflect God's love that way? How can I reflect God's love by by wearing jeans or wearing his suit pants? How can I reflect the truth of God by wearing a tie or not wearing a tie? How do these things reflect the love of God? And i got to be honest with you, I'm not sure that they can or do. I really don't believe that. I believe the love of God, the character of God, the truth of God is reflected and should be reflected in the outside. It's called Fruit. But the fruit of a believer is not what they wear. It's not their hair. A fruit of a believer is not the tattoos or lack thereof. A fruit of a believer is the the things that are done on behalf of God's kingdom, for God's kingdom, on behalf of God, for God's kingdom, or the community, for the people that God has brought into your life. It is essentially actions. Actions folks. Now, let me really destroy your world here. If you say, Russ, well, it's really not that big of a deal that there's a higher expectation for dress and hair, haircuts and, and not that big of a deal for a higher expectation of, you know, tattoos and lack thereof. That, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not. The bad thing is it's become a tradition that has elevated itself to a level of theology. And here's the real problem, following me here. When you have two options, I'm going to see the love of God reflected in how you look or the love of God reflected in how you act. Which one is easier to see? How you look. If you follow someone around long enough, you can see how they act. If you have the discretion to know what that should look like, you can find it eventually with with many, not all. Some people are really good actors. But how someone looks is just how they look, right? You, You can't hide that. So, for most people, we want to take the easy way. The tradition that men have set up, the idea that we reflect the love and character of God by how we look is a tradition of man. It's not in the Bible. And that tradition is set up to distract from the reality of how you act because God does say that about leaders. He says you'll know a false prophet, you'll know a spiritual leader, good or bad, by how they act. Look at what they do. That's what Christ said, not how they look, not what they wear, what they do. But the church is saying, look at how they look. And here's the problem. If, all, if you're so convinced that fruit, that the inward is, re, is reflected by how you look, you don't look any further, right? How is it possible that there are so many churches? And, and by the way, I think... Some, I don't know how many, I don't know a percentage, but some of these churches truly do love God. There are Christians in these churches that have a deep heart for God. How is it possible that they have spiritual leaders who are so corrupt? How is it possible that these spiritual leaders are so abusive to the people in how they treat them, and what they say to them and about them, thing, even it, narcissism, narcissism running rampant. How is it possible that Christians are not only allowing this, but folks literally hiring these people, bringing them in? Well, they didn't know. Well, then why do they keep hiring the same kind of person? I mean, they got to figure it out eventually, Right? How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. Because what are they looking for? The inward to be reflected how? On the outward, in what way? By how they look. Well, he looks good. His wife is pretty, and she's dressed nicely, and the kids, I mean, come on, the boys are wearing ties. Why would we not vote this pastor and his family in? It's all about how they look, right? Right? right and these rascals have figured it out and they are using the traditions of men to maintain power some of them are that deceived themselves i'm not convinced all of them are deceived i think some of them have figured it out (laughs) and they're playing the game and these men know how to look good and they know dare i say it christians are dumb enough to be fooled by looks it's our own fault we created the tradition. It's our own fault we followed the tradition. We embraced the tradition. And then when anyone, anyone dares attack their tradition, we take them to the Bible and say, but God's word. And we elevate it to such a high level of theology. If you're going to elevate something, elevate theology. And what did Christ say? He said, look at how they act. Fruit is not how you look. Fruit is how you act. Because I will guarantee you this. If we were to go and travel to the jungles of, of Central or South America and meet Christians there, you would be appalled at what they are not wearing. Appalled. You'd be appalled at how they treat each other and how they act around each other uh, culturally, what is culturally acceptable. I'm not saying immoral. I'm saying what is culturally acceptable. You'd be, you'd be appalled. Does that mean they love God less? It means they're not 21st century Americans. That's what it means, you know, as far as the United States of America. It means they don't live in our culture. But that's the thing about tradition. Tradition changes from culture to culture. And when you judge someone based off of tradition, you're now judging them based off of your experience of your culture and the traditions attached to that. You know what's sad? History, most of you know this. If you look at the history of missionaries from the 1700s, 1800s, very godly men and women who truly wanted to seek change in the hearts of people, but they bought into that deception that the, the inward reflected by the outward. And many of them, they brought truth. They really did. They brought the gospel. They brought Christ. They brought love. But you know what else they brought? They brought the, that tradition. And if you look at pictures of missionaries, you will find Asian, African, uh, Hispanic, churches and they all look English <laughs> they're like literally dressed in like suits and the ladies are wearing like the full gowns <laughs> like they're going to a ball somewhere because these missionaries were deceived into believing that if you are a Christian you will look like one and what did that mean for them it meant you will look like an Englishman and an Englishwoman it is so blatantly obvious for anyone who looks at the pictures from the 1700s 1800s you can't miss it and yet not much has changed you want to look like a Christian? Then you will look like a 21st century American, southerner, northerner, westerner, whatever part of the country you're in, you will look like one of us. Then we know you're a Christian. If you don't look like us, I don't know that you are. So here's what Christ is dealing with. Christ calls these men out. And he says, no, it's the inward." So let's go to what he specifically mentions. Does he mention how they look? No. Does he mention... How, uh, even what they do regarding religiously. Yes, he does, but he says what you're doing here is a facade <laughs> because what really matters is found in, um, let's see, we're going to look here now at, where am I at? I'm in the wrong section. So we're Luke chapter 11, verse 37. Um, oh, there we are, Okay. So what he's what he's really looking at is it found in verse 42. I was in chapter 12, my bad. Verse 42. And pass over judgment and the love of God. That is what reflects the heart of God. Right here, judgment and love. So if you have any doubt of what the inward should be reflecting, it's this judgment and love. What is judgment? Judgment is not, I judge you, and I judge you, and I judge you, and you're all found wanting. No, that is not what it is. Judgment here has the idea of uh, truth, following, knowing, and applying truth in a biblical way. So you know truth, you follow truth, but not just truth alone. What else is here? Love, which is the greatest commandment, which is the way, by the way, Christ said, the world will know you're one of mine. The world will know it by your love. It doesn't mean only love. You've got to love and have truth, and you've got to give truth through love. But the world will only see your love. And then eventually, after they've seen your love, we'll want to know the truth. So Christ is saying, let the inward reflect in the outward through our judgment, living and knowing truth, and through our love. Honestly, folks, we are making way too big a deal out of things that have little value. That God could truly care less about. So, if God doesn't make a big deal out of it, why are we making a big deal? Now, let's go on to Luke chapter 12. This is that passage where I told you there would be a lot of uh, different slides and I would not be able to cover them all. I'm just going to cover a couple tonight. We're almost out of time. So, uh, it's the entire chapter. Kind of similar to, to the Sermon on the Mount where he's just teaching and there's a lot going on. There's parables. There's instruction. So let's take a look at the first one here. And, uh, you know, on this theme of hypocrisy, in the, verse 1, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trode one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we talked a lot about this hypocrisy. I, I don't want to go too much more in depth with that. But did you notice the, the word he used to attach to hypocrisy, leaven? So if you cook, you know what leaven does, right? Leaven is something you put into the bread to, to help it to rise. And a little bit does, is all you need, right? You put in too much, you're going to destroy the, the meal. So a little bit of leaven spreads quickly and brings about a rising of the bread. Christ is using that word purposefully which implies to me that hypocrisy spreads easily, is easily caught, almost like a pandemic, right? If you're near someone with hypocrisy, if you're not protecting yourself, you're going to probably catch it. Hypocrisy is a very um, dangerous disease and a highly contagious one at that. Here's what I have found. If you go into a church where hypocrites are allowed to thrive one of two things will happen. They will breed more hypocrites, or the ones who are not will leave. If the hypocrites are allowed to thrive, they will multiply. It is going to happen. I am not stating that you can get to a point where a church has no hypocrites. I don't know that that's humanly possible. I am stating you can keep them from having positions of authority, you can keep them from having impact on the church by, by keeping them off the worship stage, right? By keeping them out of children's classes. If they're going to be hypocrites, then they're going to be sitting here listening to the truth. And our prayer and our hope is that God will eventually get a hold of their hearts. But let's not allow their hypocrisy to influence others. Let's not give their hypocrisy a stage every sunday morning where they can sing and 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 other people say wow you know if they are if i'm a hypocrite maybe i can be on the stage too <laughs> you know it, it doesn't take real, it doesn't take sincerity it just takes hypocrisy and i can be up there as well now i don't know the heart of men and women in our church there's no way i can i'm not god but i can tell you this if i see hypocrisy they will be removed from positions of worship from positions of authority I will not allow someone to remain in a position of impact in Meriden Hills if I strongly suspect hypocrisy because I know the danger of it. And I would expect the same from you. You have every right to call out hypocrisy in the life of your spiritual leaders. Every right and dare I say, every responsibility to do so. I know the courage that it takes for a member to call out a spiritual leader. But if no one has the courage, the spiritual leader in their hypocrisy will breed more hypocrisy. And what would you rather deal with? The uncomfortableness of outing a hypocritical leader or the uncomfortableness of seeing the church you love be overwhelmed by hypocrisy. And some of you are old enough in this room to have already experienced some of that. And If you truly love Meriden Hills, then do not let it happen here. I will do my best as a pastor, but I'm only one man. And that is why the Bible states you have an obligation to go to those individually that display any level of unbiblical character and hypocrisy is right up there. <laughs> You don't have to come to me and tell me. Don't. Go talk to them. Confront them. I say, look, I'm concerned. I see, you know, Pastor Russ may not know. I, I see you on stage. I see you with the kids. I see you doing this. I see you doing that. But then you and I know what you're actually doing throughout the week. I, I've seen that. I, I saw you here. I saw you do that. I saw you say that, right? I've seen it. Does that bother you at all, that you're living two lives, that you're living a double life? Does it concern you at all? If they have any love for God, there's going to be some level of regret. (laughs) And hopefully God can use you to help them, to pull them back into a sincere Christian life. If you cannot, if that does not happen, that's when you'd bring me in. That's when you'd bring another spiritual leader and we'd have that conversation together with them. But it has to be confronted. Christ confronted it in the open, calling these guys fools and hypocrites in the crowd. I'm not saying I would do that here. I'm just saying it has to be done. And it is a big deal. You know, a lot of people, church discipline for any type of immorality. Someone's sleeping with someone else. There's um, something going on that's not appropriate, you know, in some sexual manner. Church discipline every day, all day. But that's pretty much it. Church discipline for gossip? Like, what are you, crazy? No, we don't do church discipline for gossip. That's just, you know, that's just how it is. People gossip. You just accept that. Church discipline for hypocrisy, I mean, like, is there any way to even know someone's a hypocrite? Yeah, there is a way, you know. But it's like people think the only – I actually had someone ask me this. Um, There was someone who was looking at our church. This was years ago, looking at Meriden Hills. And and they said, all right, so let's talk about church discipline. And they said, for what things would you enact church discipline? I started listening. I might say, well, gossip, obviously immorality, Um, deception. I said abuse of any kind, whether it's verbal or physical abuse, someone's harming others. And they said, really? Wow. They said, I've only been in churches where it's pretty much, if it's immorality, that's it. If it's, not, if it's not immorality, there is no church discipline. What a shame that we would let these other sins run rampant in God's church. A double life hurts you. A double life hurts others. And verse 2, a double life will eventually be revealed. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear and closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. You're not hiding anything from God. God is waiting to reveal your hypocrisy. He has his reasons. I don't know. I'm not God. But at some point, it will be revealed. And the damage and the fallout that will come from that revelation will be very harmful to many people. Fix it now before the revelation comes. We're going to end with this one tonight. I had more slides, but we're running out of time. So let's go on to verse 4. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him who which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Now, some people think this is Satan. They're mistaken. Satan cannot throw you into hell. The only one that has the authority to judge you on an eternal level is God. Satan cannot judge you on an eternal level. I'm not even convinced he can judge you at all. So we're talking about God here. So what is God saying? You should have only one fear. It's me. Fear me. When I was young, it was was popular to wear Christian phrases, you know, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? One I remembered, which I really liked. I never got a hat or a shirt that said it, but I thought, oh, that's cool, was a shirt that said just one fear on it. That was it. And if I'm not mistaken, it had this verse, or if it wasn't this one, it would have been a different verse similar to it, where basically fear God, right? There's plenty of them, Proverbs, other places. One fear, O-N-E, fear. And uh, why? Because it was also popular to have a shirt back then that said, no fear. That was a common thing. You know, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of anyone. So you'd see a lot of people walk around with shirts, no fear. And then Christians started playing off of that, wearing shirts that said, one fear. And I really thought that was neat. Even as a teenager, I thought that was neat. It's true. We should have a fear. It's God. Why? Because God has the power of eternal judgment on our souls. I do not live in a state of terror of God because I've already come to the place where I've kneeled before him in fear of my eternal soul and I've asked for salvation. And in faith, I know that it has been granted. So I'm no longer in terror of my eternal soul because of the hope of the promise of salvation attached to the gospel of Christ. My eternal soul is guaranteed salvation. But I still serve the only God, one God, who has the ability to judge the eternal soul, and I do fear him. I fear him as a son fears his dad, as a daughter fears her mother. I fear him as a child, I love him as a child, but I recognize I am the child, and he is not. I fear him for the all-knowing all-powerful creator that he is. So Christian, why are you afraid of the world? Why do you live in fear of politics? Why do you live in fear of, of inflation? Why do you live in fear of the future, the unknown? Why are you afraid? The God of all creation has you in his hand. That doesn't mean you won't lose some things along the way doesn't mean you won't lose your life. We will all lose our lives someday. But our souls are in, our, in God's hands, and that cannot be taken from him. And that will never be taken from him, and he will never cast it aside. So why are you afraid of those who can only hurt your body? And they can and will hurt your body. But why do you fear so much of what will happen in this life to this body when our eternity is guaranteed. Let's have faith in our God and his eternal power and not fret over what this world and the chaos of it can do to this mortal temporary body. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the chance to look at your word again and to hear your many truths, to remember just how powerful the truth of Scripture is and what it means to us. I pray that you would encourage your people tonight, those here and those listening, that they would find peace and comfort in your arms. In Jesus' name, amen.